Hey everyone, I'm Amy Scott, host of How We Survive. And today's episode of Burning Questions explores a controversial idea, the use of sabotage in the climate movement. In this book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Andreas Malm argues that peaceful protest isn't cutting it and climate activists need to step up their tactics and damage or destroy the physical things that are hurting the climate, including taking the air out of SUV tires, or even blowing up oil and gas pipelines. It raises some pretty provocative questions. And this year, a film came out inspired by the book. It's a fictional story about eight people who band together to blow up a pipeline in Texas. Try to stop a pipeline from being built on my property. Poisons the air, water. to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big. Today, we're going to hear from two of the filmmakers, director Daniel Goldhaber and a writer, producer, and lead actor in the film, Ariella Barrere, about how they made the movie and this question of whether sabotage has a role in the climate movement. So our burning question today is, should we just blow it all up? And by blow it up, I mean, what role, if any, should violence have in climate activism? I think the first thing that I would say in response to that question is is, is even just the way it's framed and the usage of the word violence, um, I think is a really pertinent one, because I think that there are so many ways that the language that we use in the way that we just discuss the basics of climate change has framed the debate in a way that I think is actually unwinnable. You know, why is it that an oil refinery that pollutes the air and the water and blights the earth and creates a system of energy production that is leading to the catastrophic warming of our planet is not seen as a violent piece of infrastructure, but an act that might sabotage or, um, you know, shut down that violent piece of infrastructure is in fact seen as the violent act. I think that we live in a moment in which the very basic ideas that underpin our sense of legality, ethics, and morality have been dictated by, um, you know, capitalism and the fossil fuel industry. And I think that one of the questions that we're posing in the film is this question of what is violence and what is self-defense. And the movie follows eight characters who believe that the destruction of this piece of oil pipeline is for each one of them in individual ways an act of self-defense. Ariella, what do you think? Should we blow it all up? Whether you see sabotage as violence or whether it's justified violence, is that inevitably part of the answer? I mean, I, d I disagree with what Daniel said, and I think ultimately, like, we as artists interrogate that question through the film, and I don't know how much clearer I'd want to be about my personal feelings about it, but I think... I think you can find the answer in the film and through the dialogue, especially between Alicia and Sochi. It was something that I was very passionate about writing um, these two characters in conflict and in 
also just like community with each other, how they go about this ecosystem of activism that has to exist for any progress to be made. Ariella, I saw an interview you did where you said you don't feel like an activist for having made this film, but I wonder if for you it was a way to be active uh, and to do something about that existential dread that I think so many of us have been feeling these past several years. Yeah, definitely. I think cultural production has also always been a part of of movements and, and how those movements and disinformation is disseminated across you know, whatever platforms and however far-reaching it can be. I, uh, yeah, I'm hesitant. I, I wouldn't call us activists because I think there, there's been this, like, false equivocation between, like, media about the work being the work and people kind of call it mm. a day there when there are people putting their lives on the line right now to do that work. And I would never try to say that we've done anything close to what they're doing I hope that this mo- this movie can serve the movement and the people that are out there putting their bodies on the line. I hope that, you know, when things escalate or things are already escalating, when property is burned, when things like this happen, not necessarily a pipeline blowing up, but when infrastructure or, or property is attacked, this movie can serve as like cultural context. It can serve to just ask the question of could you understand why people would feel the need to do this and why people might consider this self-defense? Could you consider this self-defense? And and asking that question on a larger scale, I hope can do some good for the movement. I'm wondering if there are, how you thought about the role that each character would play. I'm thinking about Alicia in particular, who's really kind of the, in some ways, the moral voice uh, of the story asking about the downsides and the risks of sabotage, who might get hurt. You, you may be hurting the, the, the working class people who need gas to drive to their jobs and not um, the people who are most responsible for this crisis. We should acknowledge that what we're doing is actually going to hurt a lot of people. It's not going to hurt anyone. We're not hurting anyone. We're spiking oil prices. Revolution has collateral damage. Yeah, but who's the collateral? You want to burn it down in an hour? It takes like a lifetime to build something new. How did you think about developing uh, those voices through the individual characters? Alicia was an incredibly important character for me to have in the film because while we were in some ways, as the book does, criticizing what's going on in the climate movement, we in no way ever wanted to say the people that are out there doing the work are wrong. You know, like the work is being done on so many levels and we wanted someone to embody that, someone who to embody like being actively part of a community and doing all of this like work that you could say the movie would be criticizing and yet she is the one who is thinking the most about the people and and she is the one who is dedicating herself to this every day of her life and Alicia just has so much heart and so much to give and she's just someone who I think really grounds the film and who I came to care about a lot in the writing process so arguably one of the criticisms of the book, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is that you don't actually learn how to blow up a pipeline. Uh, it's a call to action and a philosophical sort of mulling of, of you know, the, the use of violence in uh, social change. Um, but there's you, you sort of refer to that. There's a moment where I think Sean is reading the book in a bookstore and uh, Logan comes up to him and says, eh, 
you know, he doesn't actually tell you how to do it. Was this a direct response to that? You wanted to, because (laughs) you do show people pretty in detail how to blow up a a pipeline. Yeah, that line was like an offhand joke we made in the writing process that I was like, there's no way this is going to make it in the movie. Somehow (laughs) stayed in the movie. (laughs) Because they definitely, that was like, that's like people's favorite thing to say about the book. And it's definitely like a title that is more about great marketing than being extremely descriptive. Listen, if I touch or even jostle this primer too much, it could detonate. I need you to take this 20 yards back. If anything goes wrong, then... uh... Don't come in unless I tell you to, unless you see fire. Don't come in. Got it. How did you research how to build a bomb without attracting the attention of of law enforcement officials? Or did you? We, um, (laughs) a a friend of a friend, um, you know, is a homemade explosives expert. And, um... Uh, basically he's a big bomb nerd and very much outside of the uh, limits of his job description. Um, just walk us through how to do it. None of this stuff is particularly difficult to look up the recipe for. It's pretty difficult to do without hurting yourself, which is something that the movie pretty actively engages in. But I think for us, it was really important that everything that is in the film was kind of exactingly accurate because part of the provocation of the movie and the political question of the film is like, there's something that's so accessible about that. uh, And so or tangible about it and immediate about it um, that I think that it, it, it causes you to think differently about just what the climate fight actually could look like potentially. Well, what you said about you know, talking about or showing the work is not the same as doing the work reminded me of this scene in the film that's super uncomfortable, I think, for journalists like me, um, where there's a documentary film crew interviewing the character Dwayne about the situation with his land and the trauma he's gone through. Daniel, I wondered, you have some experience working on documentaries. I wondered if that came from your personal experience and maybe your own discomfort about the role of the documentarian or the artist uh, versus the people who are actually involved directly. I think that the problem that I saw kind of being a part of those organizations and those spaces, and especially that very corporate minded NGO type of work Mm -hmm. um, is that there was such a low ceiling on what it could do because you, you, you're out there and you're essentially screaming from the rooftops. Like the world is ending the world as we know it is ending. Um, and, and here's all this proof. Then people go, my God, that's the most terrifying thing I ever heard. What can I possibly do? And the answer on the other side of it has been, oh, change your light bulbs. Don't forget to vote. Maybe buy an electric car. People have known that's like a very unsatisfying answer. And I think that what it's contributed to is a strong sense of inaction and doomism because the moment that we had to really spur people to action with awareness, we kind of squandered. And we squandered it because the answer to the question is we need to fundamentally rethink the way that we've organized our society on planet Earth from the ground up. 
we have to completely rebuild our civilizational foundation. We have to rethink capitalism. That's it. That's the answer. The problem is that the systems that supported that cultural moment of awareness raising were the exact same systems that were fundamentally ultimately being challenged. That's where I think some of my, I think, discomfort with documentary comes from at its core. And more practically, it does come from, I think, the thing Ariel was saying about filmmakers, I think, confusing making a movie about something with doing that thing. And then more broadly speaking, audiences confusing, consuming a piece of media about something for having been actually engaged in it. Yeah, and I have to say, I actually felt better watching the movie. <laughs> you know, uh, there was something therapeutic about it. Feeling better is the goal. I Feeling better without feeling like, and now everything's fine. Feel, I think those yeah, small victories, yeah. and we've had some conversations with activists and organizers where when they talk about their actual moments of radicalization, a lot of the times it's just like getting that small victory with the community of people is the thing that keeps you going. And if this movie can feel like that small victory that keeps a movement going, like that's everything I could ask. That's great. Yeah. How did your understanding of movements in the past change as a result of reading the book and, and maybe also the research you did for your film? I mean, Andreas Malm makes the case that we think of a lot of social justice or social movements as being about nonviolence when in fact they weren't. <laughs> and we've sort of had this revisionist history of the suffrage movement, of the civil rights movement, um, and that actually um, many of those were, were violent we started writing this kind of on the tail of the BLM movement of 2020. Um, mm. And we had both been kind of on the ground at protest for both the BLM movement and like climate change movement stuff in 2019. I think my first protest was like 2014. And it, there was very much this attitude that to be taken seriously, there could not be any violence, property destruction, any escalation, and kind of, you know, over the course of the six years between my first protest and the more recent protest, the conversation within those spaces really started shifting into, like, but is attacking capital a very legitimate form of protest when you are operating under a government that values capital over the lives of its people? And so that had already been kind of a conversation we were having. And then when Andreas came out with this book, it just became like a great text to point to that had kind of compiled all the evidence and all of the history to argue for that case. So since uh, How How to Blow Up a Pipeline, the book came out, we have seen some incidents of sabotage um, from the protesters who threw tomato soup on a Van Gogh. That's, you know... Um, really more of a stunt, I guess, but also attacks on uh, gas pumps in England last year. And there was a group that sabotaged a pipeline in British Columbia. Do you feel like there is a shift happening in the movement? The movie itself was inspired by acts of sabotage that predate it. You know, look at the case of Jessica Resnicek and Ruby Montoya, who sabotaged the Dakota Access Pipeline when there was not even oil running through it, um, which is essentially an act of simple vandalism. We began in Mahaska County, Iowa, 
using oxyacetylene cutting torches to pierce through exposed, empty steel valves, successfully delaying completion of the pipeline for weeks. And they turned themselves in, they admitted to their crime, and they were given six and eight years in prison with a charge of terrorism. You know, that that's something that predates the movie, and I think that there are lots of acts that we know about and lots of acts that we don't know about. And frankly, what I'm significantly more concerned about than any single act of environmental sabotage is the unjustifiable and unimaginable crackdown from the police that's happening. Look at what's happening in Cop City, where the city is destroying a forest to build an illegal police training ground so that, you know... To fully militarize the police. Um, and they're taking away, you know, some of the last green space um, from a, a community predominantly of color. Um, and you have people engaging in completely legitimate and, you know, widely accepted forms of, of protest and nonviolent resistance who are being beaten arrested and charged with terrorism and the evidence being presented is that they had dirt on their shoes because that meant that they were that they were essentially part of some sort of illegal operation the criminalization of speech and political expression when it comes to environmental in this country environmentalism in this country is absolutely terrifying and i think is significantly more concerning uh at the moment than than any sort of other escalation of tactics well i also wonder if that makes it even less likely that there will be escalation if if peaceful protest is being criminalized. I think that's what they are trying to do. I think that's probably the idea behind the crackdowns. But also at a certain point when people are being attacked for doing nothing, why not do more? That feeling of not, I have a moral responsibility to act, but I literally have no future, so who cares? I'll do what I want. I'll do what I can. I'll act out my rage and take it out on a justified target is something that we have seen young people do throughout history. And I certainly think that we'll see it in the climate movement. Those responses will escalate as the planet boils us alive. I understand that as filmmakers, you've laid out kind of the argument for people to draw their own conclusions. I do want to raise the, the question that a lot of people have, which is the concern that, that sabotage can backfire because the public recoils, people dig in. And, you know, in the case of destroying infrastructure, it gets rebuilt and therefore emits more carbon in the process. And I just wonder, you know, how much you've thought about that, um, how you might respond to those questions. In regards to the first one about a, a public backlash, I mean, that's an argument that's very clearly laid out in the book of just that radical flank existing to almost give leverage to a more center-left uh, being something that is a value to a progressive movement in itself. Right, because it makes them them look more rational and reasonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wielding this hypothetical public backlash to prevent a kind of you know, genuine resistance movement is also nothing new. Uh, and that's something else the book kind of digs into is that, you know, uh, we forget that people thought that Martin Luther King Jr. was too extreme for his era and, and, and he was the moderate. This has always been the argument that has been wielded against progressives to, to prevent change and to kind of spook people from actually acting. I think the same thing, you know, could could go for any act of resistance or or any act of of, of war. 
Um, you know, like why, why blow up the bridge on the river Kwai? They're only going to rebuild it. It's like, yeah, well, because that's what you do. Um, <laughs> like that's how you fight back. Like, like this, this notion that, that somehow, you know, well, we're going to predict three or four steps down the line and recognize that, you know, this one thing isn't going to solve everything. Um, that again is, is the way that they, they want us to think. But when you look at what the other side is, is willing to do, they certainly don't care about a, a, a hypothetical public backlash. They know that if they just keep the pressure on and the heat on, eventually people will buckle to their will. And if we don't adopt the same kind of attitude, um, we certainly can't expect to, to gain even an inch of ground. Uh, is there anything either of you would want to add or make sure people take away from this conversation? Maybe just almost the place that we started. And it's something that I, I've just been noticing more and more and that I just keep wanting to return to from the standpoint of language, which is just the use of this word violence. Because I've it's really occurred to me that we only really use the word violence in these capacities to describe the resistance and to not describe the kind of militant police arm of the state. Um, and we, we kind of, we, we talk about that in the passive voice. We talk about that, you know, as kind of necessary peacekeeping. We don't talk about what the police and what the state are doing and what the fossil fuel industry are doing as, as violent. And I think that indisputably, when it comes to things that are harming human lives every day on Earth, um, that is where the violence is coming from. And I think it's really important that we stop branding resistance to violence as violence um, and that we think a lot about how we deploy that term um, because I think that even subconsciously it's used as a way to discourage action. Daniel Goldhaber and Ariella Barrera, it's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Amy Scott, host of How We Survive. Our senior producer is Haley Hirschman. Caitlin Esch is our editor. Mallory Brangan is our video editor, which, by the way, Burning Questions is a video series. You can check that out on YouTube. Brian Allison is our sound engineer. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director. And Neil Scarborough is vice president and general manager of Marketplace. Our theme music is by Wonderly. This project was funded with an APMG Kling Innovation Grant. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>